This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Evangelicalism as a religious movement is a little bit tricky. I sometimes joke that evangelicalism has more gatekeepers than it does actual beats. It's a very contested thing throughout its history. So using the idea of a conversation helped me wrestle with some of the complexities and some of the weirdnesses of evangelicalism and how they could all be one thing, even when they weren't the same idea. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Daniel Silliman. He's the news editor for Christianity Today. He earned a doctoral degree in American studies from Heidelberg University in Germany and has taught U.S. history and humanities at Heidelberg, Valparaiso University, and Milligan University. Today we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Daniel Silliman, welcome to Things Not Seen. So I want to start out in the same place that you begin with your book, you are standing in a bookstore. It's an evangelical bookstore, and it's having a going-out-of-business sale. You're standing in the midst of this and asking yourself a, a sort of important question. What is an evangelical? That's where I want to begin, because I really was intrigued with how you began to approach that question. You didn't necessarily look at what evangelicals believed or what evangelicals voted for to find the essence of evangelicalism, but instead you started to ask yourself, what are evangelicals reading and buying, and how does that help us understand who evangelicals are? So help us to understand why you chose that as your starting point for beginning to try and get at the question of who are and what are evangelicals. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I feel like historians, religious historians, and others who try to analyze and think about American evangelicalism always start with this definition. It's almost just book after book, you get the, all right, so what are evangelicals? Well, here are four things. And I was never, I was never happy with any of those definitions. They seem to me to often be white, but in really abstract ways that don't actually, I don't know, get the nitty gritty of people's lives, or they take something that's maybe matters, but only in a particular way. I don't know. I just, I always struggled with those definitions. And my own sense is that evangelicalism 
is and has been a lot of different things. And so I was trying to think too about what what holds all these things together. And my own experience in the Christian bookstore had always made me think that this was a kind of starting point. This was a, a physical space where you could just sit there and start looking around and saying, okay, what do I know about this room? What can I see going on right here? So what I end up trying to do is think about two things. One is imagination, dreams, the kind of larger conversation and the framing questions of conversation. And think about how those define evangelicalism. And then secondly, the actual structures that hold it together. So the books and the book markets, the questions on fiction and the invitation to imagination that comes with fiction, but also the ways in which it's literally sold and how one can buy into evangelicalism through a bookstore or then later in a secular bookstore at the mall or in the suburbs or online on Amazon and trying to track how those things change the shape of the imagined community of imagined evangelicalism. I really like that answer, and we're going to be digging into the particulars of that answer as our conversation continues. But maybe as a way of introducing you, it seems to me that you're not coming to this conversation as an outsider, and that at least at certain points in your life, you would have considered yourself to be described by the term evangelical. But those are my words, not yours. So I'd like to ask and invite you to tell us how you yourself think about your relationship to evangelicalism and the idea of what an evangelical is. I am an evangelical now. I, I own that pretty Easily, pretty frankly, I haven't always felt that way. And in my childhood, I grew up in a pretty extreme church. We were Pentecostal, but I often tell people we were crazy Pentecostal. Assemblies of God seemed like the main line to us. We were very far out in our own corner of things. And I was actually taught that all the other evangelicals were wrong, that all the other churches were wrong, and we were the last true believers. I was about 15 when we were kicked out of that church. So when we left that, the Christian bookstore became a really interesting space for me. It was a place to equate myself with a larger community and start thinking about, okay, where, who are these people and, and where might I relate to them and how do they relate to each other? Because they're not all the same either. But after college, I then became more comfortable with the evangelical identity and more convinced that whatever criticisms I have, and I, I do have criticisms about the history and the politics and different tendencies, that these are my people and that this is my larger group. In the book, I'm very much working as a historian. I'm trying to describe and give an account of evangelical history through best-selling novels and the book market. But yeah, I am doing it as someone who's um, familiar, <laughs> pretty closely familiar with this world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He is the news editor for Christianity Today, and we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. 
So you've begun to talk about the structure of the book, and this might be a time to let our listeners know that you're really looking at evangelical culture in kind of a materialist reading, and you're reading it through a series of five different novels. And the novels are Love Comes Softly, This Present Darkness, Left Behind, The Shunning, and The Shack. And I, as I was reading each of these chapters, I was fascinated because you do a really deep dive into both the kind of life of the author and why and how they came to write this various piece of fiction. But you also talk about how it is received by readers. You do deep dives into Goodreads. But then you also use each chapter as a jumping off point to talk about some aspect of evangelical culture, like authenticity or accuracy or some other way of of getting at some of the evangelical mindset that's part of the wider culture at the time that these various books became popular. I was fascinated by the structure of the book, and I just wanted to ask you about that. So how did you come to decide that this was the right way to use each of these pieces of fiction as a lens not only into the mind of the, the writer and the reader, but to then widen the scope of vision to say, and here's what evangelicals were thinking at the time as well? I'm glad you appreciated the structure and figuring out how to structure the book and each chapter was a real feat. In some ways, that was the hardest part. Yeah, so I thought of each structure, each chapter as the trying to follow the publishing circuits, which book historians have talked about from the author to the publisher through the editing process and then focusing on distribution, which turns out to shape so much in the history of books and is so often ignored. When we just study writing, we often don't don't pay attention to the distribution. And then the reception. And I thought that really ends up being so important. You know, it's really easy to say offhandedly, a million people read this book. And here's the ideas of this book. Therefore, a million people must have agreed with these ideas. But I just think if you've ever read a book and not liked it, that's not quite how it works. And so finding the variety of leader reactions really helped me end that that publisher circuit. Part of what's really weird, I guess, if that's not too pejorative to use for my own book, part of what's weird about what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do novels as historical objects, right? So how did they exist and live and connect people and inspire conversations and carry conversations as historical objects? So I'm not a literary scholar looking at novels. I'm a historian, which involves reading the novels really closely, but really trying to think about how they existed in the world and how they carry part of the conversation that is evangelicalism in that specific moment in time. And this was an aspect of your book that really fascinated me, and I appreciate you making that distinction between a a historical type of criticism and a literary type of criticism, because And I found this especially poignant with something like a contrast between the way that an audience received and was enlivened by Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness and the way that a different evangelical audience received and was enlivened by William Paul Young's The Shack. Because in in both of these cases, Frank Peretti, for for listeners that are unfamiliar, is basically giving us a demon-haunted world where a small town is beset upon by these demonic influences and there's literally a cosmic holy war happening invisibly around this town, and readers 
came away from that, some of them saying this is fiction, but it's a really great way to think about our politics. Others came away thinking really in a galvanized way, no, this is the way that reality really is, and we really are in spiritual holy war. And and in contrast to that, the shack gave a very kind of ambivalent approach towards spirituality and really lived in the gray areas and not the black and whites that Peretti loved. And some readers really resonated with that, but then you had evangelical luminaries like Chuck Colson and others coming on and saying, no, this is wrong. It's false teaching. It's really bad. You shouldn't read it. You should stay out of the shack. I'm fascinated with the way that you were able to really get into the construction of these audiences through these books. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So there's a long history. There's an academic history to the debate of what to do with audiences, of how to interpret them. If we can go on a little bit of an intellectual journey, I think this is fascinating. The Frankfurt School, which some people may have heard of in Germany in the post-war, specifically in the post-war period, scholars like, well, Jürgen Habermas is the one I interact with the most, but there's a bunch of people. Marcuse is another one, Herbert Marcuse. They're really interested in audiences and ideology. You know, they're really interested in how does capitalism use popular culture to reproduce itself in mass audiences. And for a lot of early cultural studies, they had a propaganda model for how pop culture worked, whether this is Disney movies or McDonald's, right? That it just swamps people and forces them to agree with stuff. Unless they happen to be educated enough to be able to use critical theory to recognize the invisible ideology and escape from it. And then a little while later, some scholars come along and they're starting to question that normal people are quite as gullible as that model makes it out to be. That normal people, you know, your average reader doesn't have more freedom or more creativity. So the, there's a seminal work by a guy named Stuart Hall in the Birmingham School where he talks about there being different sort of set positions that people have towards literal propaganda, like not talking about pop culture, but actual like state propaganda. And he says, yeah, there's people, there's, a, there's one stance where people just accept it straight as it is. And there's another stance where people disbelieve everything. They're the antagonistic readings of the propaganda. And he said, but then there's this whole middle section where people actually buy some of it and reinterpret other parts of it. And they have a, what he calls a negotiated reading. That right there gets you to the idea that any mass audience is going to have at least three parts. And maybe I can't tell with a blockbuster movie or a best-selling evangelical novel, the respective size of those three parts, but I can at least just assume okay, there's going to be people who love it and just buy into everything. And there's going to be people, be people who hate it. And there's going to be these people in the middle. And then I should just, at minimum, start thinking of the audience as having these three parts. And as a shadow here, the book that really helped me see this is this very strange and lovely little book called Watching Dallas by a um, scholar named Ian Ang. She's a Dutch scholar and... She found that when the soup opera Dallas was really popular, more than 50% of people in the Netherlands watched it every week. 
And all of the standard interpretations for the popularity of the soap opera Dallas were all American-centric. And so she just thought, well, that can't, that doesn't work. We're, we're Dutch. And so she started going and, and interviewing people and talking to them and coming up with these like more complicated, robust ways of thinking. So that's what I tried to do. I just started the problem for the primary sources that I used ended up being online stuff. So good reads for the most part. I was able to, you know, assuming that take left behind 65 million copies sold, assuming that a chunk of these people loved everything about it and totally believe exactly what the authors would have wanted them to believe when they read it. But then also that there were people in the middle and then also that there were people that hated it. And then I could use Goodreads to say, well, when they did love it, what did they love about it? And when they hated it, what did they hate about it? And when they had complicated, negotiated feelings about it, like Stuart Hall would have suggested, what were they negotiating? How were they thinking about it? So that I use that approach to give me just a more complicated picture of, of the audience. And we'll be getting into all of this as our conversation continues. But for right now, I'm going to let folks know that you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He is the news editor for Christianity Today and has taught at numerous institutions. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He is the news editor for Christianity Today magazine. He earned a doctoral degree in American studies from Heidelberg University in Germany, and he's taught U.S. history and humanities at Heidelberg, Valparaiso University, and Milligan University. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Well, this name came up a little bit in our first segment and comes up a lot in your book, Reading Evangelicals. It's a critical theorist, a later addition to the Frankfurt School, a man by the name of Jürgen Habermas. And in particular, he has an idea about communities and communities of interpretation and how they work. But I would love it if you would give us a little bit of overview of kind of what this idea of Habermas is and how it begins to factor into your analysis in your book, Reading Evangelicals. Yeah, he talks about imagined communities and he talks about discourse communities. And for him, this is about the emergence of a public sphere at the beginning of the sort of modern era that he thinks is so important to free society, this this discourse community and the rules of discourse in the public sphere. There's a lot of history there, but the kind of idea is that 
to our conversation, which are carried on by, by letters, by public forums, by debates, by newspapers, that in that process, we construct a community. And of course, it's not a literal, you know, we're all in the same room, but we all, by participating in it, get this sense of the public that we're a part and that there's certain implicit rules for what you have to do and how you're allowed and and when you've broken the rules about engaging in this conversation and that it comes with this, um, yeah, imagined sense of belonging. This has mattered to scholars thinking about um, nations. So there's a lot of scholarship about nations as imagined community. But it hadn't been applied very much to religious movements. And evangelicalism as a religious movement is a little bit tricky. As a tradition, it's a little bit tricky because there isn't a lot of institutional infrastructure, right? There's not a pope. There aren't synods. Some some evangelicals accept certain creeds and others don't. And so there's something about the structure of evangelicalism that is extra open or loose. I sometimes joke that evangelicalism has more gatekeepers than it does actual gates. It's a very contested thing throughout its history. So using the idea of a conversation, a discourse community leading to an imagined community, helped me wrestle with and, and sort of describe some of the complexities and some of the weirdnesses of evangelicalism and how they could all be one thing, even when they weren't the same idea about politics or the same idea. You know, in the books that I looked at, the sort of core idea is what does beliefs mean? What is it like to live out your Christian faith day to day? And they don't all have the same answer, and yet they're still bound together in some kind of a conversation. And so thinking about imagined community helps me describe how they're part of the same conversation and how that holds evangelicalism together, even when it doesn't have a more formal institutional structure. I want to stick with this for just a moment because I'm fascinated by what you're saying. Uh, Sometimes in my work, I I play with an idea called parasocial relationship. And for listeners, I'll explain what I mean. So my my daughter and son, they are 11 and 10, respectively, and they have fallen in love with the Harry Potter series of books to the extent that they have gotten together costumes so that they can play Harry Potter. They have fashioned themselves some makeshift wands so that they can cast imaginary spells. They really identify deeply with these characters at a social level. And at their school, they formed a kind of Harry Potter club of other Harry Potter fans, and they would reenact scenes from the books and from the movies as they were playing and creating a relationship with fictional characters and beginning to form communities around those fictional characters and the relationships that they have with fictional characters. Am I understanding or connecting with what you're saying that Habermas is talking about with regard to discourse communities and imagined communities? Is that similar to what Habermas is talking about? Or are there differences that you would note? Yeah, so Habermas is more interested in like public debates around public matters, taxes and freedom of the press. But I think the idea works, yeah, very explicitly in this imaginative way that we engage novels. If you've ever read a novel and you've loved a novel, it's really easy to imagine yourself in conversation with 
the author. Even if it's more one way than the other, you're still in this relationship, in this conversation with the author. But then, as you point out, you're often also in literal and in conversation with other readers as well. So there's a sort of parallel community. You read a book and you pass it to your mom, or you read a book and your coworker asks you about it and have a great conversation because you were reading that book. And that book facilitates that real world connection. But then of course there are other relationships too. Think about think about when you read a book and you don't like it, but then you imagine another reader who does like it and how you disagree with them. You're you had you often have an imagined reader that you're reading alongside. And especially if the book slightly doesn't work for you or something about the book is maybe not quite working for you. And then, of course, there also there's also your relationship with wherever you bought the book, your relationship with the publishers and the publishers and all the literary people thinking about you and all of the people like you and how you're going to respond to this book. And especially when something's massively popular, like Harry Potter or like the, the science Christian fiction novels that I talk about in my book, you are creating quite a community. And that is what Habermas is talking about as a discourse community. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He's the news editor for Christianity Today. He earned a doctoral degree in American Studies from Heidelberg University in Germany. And today we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. So I want to stick with this idea for a moment because in your book, Reading Evangelicals, you talk about the fact that bookstores, book distribution, book publishing for denominations for a certain period, particularly in American religious history, they really became a parallel enterprise where the distribution of books and denominational growth were really used one to catapult the other continually to greater and greater reach and success. And so I'm fascinated by this idea that we are forming communities through the books that we read and by the people that we think that we want to share those books with, and that there are people on the other side of that equation, the publishers and the book distributors, who are watching these relationships and saying, how can we make sure that this next book that we produce lands with even greater impact and reaches an even more targeted audience. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that dynamic, which you go into in your book, Reading Evangelicalism. You go into this dynamic between the way that the entire book can be crafted in order to make sure that certain types of relationships result from it. Yeah, an interesting way to think about it is this historical shift, which I'm not the first to note, but it hasn't been very noted. This historical shift in religious publishing from the mid-19th century up into the mid-20th century, pretty much most religious books are produced by denominational publishers, right? So Methodists are publishing books for Methodists, Mennonites are publishing books for Mennonites, and, and so on. And the big publishers occasionally publish a religious book, but it's not like they're anti-religious books. It's just hard to find the niche. It's just hard to find the right reader. One, this is because it's a big country in the days before Barnes and Noble and before Amazon. You know, most bookstores were actually in, in big cities. And so you're not reaching um, actually lots of 
the audience that you might want to reach with a religious book. But then as you track it, you see these religious publishers realize, well, I'm a Methodist. I wouldn't mind if a Baptist read my books. Like, it'd be great. The logic of the market is to expand your audience if you can. But they have distinct distribution networks. You know, they're showing up at conferences assigned to their denominations. They're recruiting future authors through the networks of their denomination. And all of that communication comes and, the, and then, of course, they're, they're publishing books with theological distinctives and emphases that might also alienate that potential broader audience. So it starts to happen a little before World War II, but especially after World War II, is the emergence of what at that time were called fundamentalist movements where conservatives and different denominations started identifying with each other and started saying, I might, as a conservative Presbyterian, actually have more in common with you as a conservative Baptist than I do with a liberal in my, in my own denomination. And so you see, you know, summer conferences, for example, places where celebrity evangelists like Billy Sunday would go, and you people start trying to sell books in those spaces across the denominational lines, basically to escape those denominational networks and, and, and structures. And then after World War II, there's a big economic boom that happens in the United States. And this means publishers are excited to publish more books. They form the Christian Booksellers Association, which allows them to, to, to collaborate and that to be a network. And then there's lots of money for loans for small businesses, for certain people in certain areas. And you get the emergence of the Christian bookstore. And the Christian bookstore in the explosive growth of the suburbs is not denominational at all. So it's really trying to reach as many Christians as possible. And it really creates this broader trans-denominational idea of an evangelical audience. Well, in one place where this really becomes crystal clear in your book, Reading Evangelicals, is a conversation that happens between Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the person that he wants to co-author a book with. They begin to try and figure out who is the audience that they're trying to reach, people who already believe in the kind of dispensationalist theology that Tim LaHaye is pointing to, the, the notion that there is going to be an end times and that it can be predicted and that certain things will happen? Or are they trying to reach people who are not convinced yet and haven't perhaps heard about this end times prophecy approach to the world and the end of the world? I was fascinated by that conversation, and I'd love for you to share a portion of that conversation with our listeners. Yeah, they meet out at the Chicago O'Hare Airport, which is a, a scene I know we can all picture. And Lehay at this point is a pastor. He's a very politically active pastor, very interested in end times theology. He's actually written recently before this a book on end times theology that did not do well. Just people were not that interested in it. And he actually had seen, I think, a theatrical pr production of Ben Hur and thought, man, people seem to love fiction. If I could find a way to turn my theology into a novel, that would be great. So he goes looking for a, for a fiction writer. And Jerry Jenkins at this point 
he calls himself uh, uh, a workman author, an audience for the masses. He writes like sports biographies and he writes very fast and very entertaining. And so they meet and talk about it and they have this disagreement. And, and Jenkins, the professional writer, is saying, you got to tell me who your audience is. I'm writing for Christians to just encourage them in there and help them think about it. Or are we writing as a kind of evangelistic enterprise to convert people to this theology? And LaHaye says both. And Jenkins says, you can't do both. You got to pick. But LaHaye wins the day. He gets to have his say. And they do try and construct it simultaneously so that someone who knows nothing about this theology will be drawn into the story and just be compelled to suspend disbelief for this kind of action venture. And also that people who care about the theology will find a way to, to engage it. And then it goes for goes on sale and it does pretty well. But the interesting thing is it, you know, it starts by just selling in the Christian bookstore, but it sells well enough that Walmart decides to pick it up. Walmart decides to sell it. Walmart had not traditionally sold books, but they had an interesting experience where there was a religious right boycott of Kmart over some pornographic novels that featured underage protagonists that had been sold by a, uh, a bookseller. It wasn't actually sold at Kmart, but it was like the company was related to the company that owns Kmart or something. And Kmart was a better boycott target. And Walmart was watching this boycott and thought, well, that's interesting. Books are a good way to communicate values and communicate identity to our middle American audience. What if we sold some religious books? We could just have a rack in the middle somewhere. And maybe we sell enough books that would be worthwhile, but we would also like connect with the values of our shoppers. And so they picked up actually the fourth volume of Left Behinds, which I've, I've tried to introduce to students by having them read the fourth volume first. And it doesn't work very well. So it's a little bit strange, but they start with that fourth volume. And interestingly, that's when left behind launches bestseller status. And people go back and read the first one, but you really see this transformation in the market of how these books are sold, kind of fulfilling that vision that Tim LaHaye had had multiple audiences being drawn in to this one conversation. As we're moving towards our next break, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about this dynamic that you've just described, where interest can create a market, but a new market, like having the book available at Walmart, also can create sudden new interest in a product of fiction or a book like this. So I'm, I'm curious about that dynamic because I think people would would probably assume, hey, if a book is good, it'll find a market and it'll sell. But what you're describing is not actually the case. Sometimes just placing something in the right distribution point can create the interest and even drive it to bestseller status. Now, those are my words, not yours. Would you say it in a different way? I mean, I think that's a pretty good explanation. We often in our analysis of pop culture kind of only pay attention to the demand side, that there must have been some desire in the audience and that if the desire exists, it will be met somehow. That kind of gives the market magical powers to always meet the needs and demands of people and never create them. And that doesn't really seem right to me. So it's useful to, you know, while not dismissing the desires of consumers and not dismissing the demand side, really also think about the supplies. What was produced and how was it distributed? 
And what you find with the history of books is that where books are distributed and how books are distributed really dramatically changes who has access to that, who gets a chance to read that book. And with religious literature, I think um, you're talking about planting a flag and allowing people to to find this thing and allowing them to use this thing to articulate their own beliefs and their own ideas and their own relationship to the people around them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He is the news editor for Christianity Today, and we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He's the news editor for Christianity Today. He earned a doctoral degree in American Studies from Heidelberg University in Germany and has taught U.S. History and Humanities at Heidelberg, Valparaiso University, and Milligan University. Today we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. In our previous segment, you made a statement. You say that Books communicate values and identity, and you were talking about how Walmart made the decision to carry some books in the Left Behind series from Tim LaHaye, saying this will communicate to our consumers what our values are and how we identify. One of the things that really struck me about your analysis in reading Evangelicals was that this is exactly the way that we can begin to map over time the way in which evangelical identity has been constructed. And it's really canny to me how you found in these various of these five books real touch points for the shifting landscape of evangelical identity. And I wonder if you could briefly walk my listeners and I through the kind of way that you have observed the evangelical mindset in American religious history shifting over the scope of the novels that you look at here in your book, Reading Evangelicals. Yeah, it's a little bit too easy to put them in chronological order. It gets deceptive. Instead, what we see is a lot of things existing at once. (laughs) And so it's not a mindset like singular, but evolving. It's rather that the evangelical mindset is a multitude. (laughs) There's a lot of different things happening. And so we can see different ideas emerge. It's a little bit like someone building a house without a plan. Still, there's that room over there and it doesn't come in and quite connect, but it's still connected, but it's harder to get to that room than it might have been in the past. So you talked earlier about the structure of the book. There's a there's a narrative arc of the market and then the different sort of ideas and mindsets keep growing and getting attached. But the old ones don't go away. Okay, so to to walk through it in the first book, which really starts fiction as an evangelical genre, Love Comes Softly, this romance novel, you get this idea of abundant life. And the idea that um, you can trust God and you can trust that God wants the best for you. And if you give yourself over to that, you will have the best possible lives that you can have. 
in your suburbs, in your community, in your marriage, you will flourish and will be um, fulfilled. Then moving on to the 80s, we get people who, um, you know, very much part of this evangelical world, but are not personally flourished. They're struggling. And so Frank Peretti tells a story about his faith is struggle and that struggling and specifically coming into conflict with your neighbors can be an expression of faith and can be experienced, you know, not a sign that something's wrong with you, but actually a sign that you're being faithful and that you are living out biblical truths in your small town. We get a bit, little bit of a similar idea in Left Behind. Left Behind, as many people know, is the story of the rapture. But if you look at it, it's also the story of God intervening in a really specific way into human history and have been intervening in a way that's very obvious to the main characters and no one else around them sees it. Everyone else disagrees. So it's almost like this you know, epistemological problem. I know I can see it and everyone thinks I'm wrong and I don't understand why they can't see something obvious. And so it imagines this kind of um, cultural conflict and that the cultural conflict is like the core of the expression of your Christianity. And then we get to the first Amish romance novel, The Shunning. And it's not like The Shunning completely rejects that future war approach to Christianity, but it also doesn't embrace it at all. It doesn't pay attention to it. It puts it aside. And The Shunning really focuses on authenticity. And, and it's the story of a, a woman who has been adopted into an Amish family and she doesn't know her, her own adoption has been kept secret from her and she doesn't feel like she belongs in this strict religious community and then discovers that she doesn't belong in the strict community has forced her to not be her authentic self. And so as she goes on in the novel, she experiences this authentic imperative to be herself and she has to break free from her religious community. And you see this in the, in the same moment in the broader evangelical idea. There's a lot of it actually in the megachurch culture, whether it's Willow Creek or Saddleback. You know, as those megachurches in the 90s are giving people different types of music and different types of community and allowing them to, to make those kind of consumer choices at church, they're doing that specifically to embrace a vision of authenticity and that how being authentic is the truest expression of your faith. Then we move on to the last novel that I look at, which is The Shack in, in 2008, comes out in 2008. And The Shack is an odd novel. It, it doesn't stick to one genre, which is interesting. It starts out as a crime novel, and then it becomes a story of a sort of mystical retreat with the Trinity where a man goes into the woods and spends a little time with the Father, a little time with the Son, and a little time with the Holy Spirit and goes through this um, kind of process of processing his own pain, his own trauma, and coming to a new religious understanding. But the core idea there is about the value of ambiguity, of living intention, of not trying to have it all worked out 
And the idea is actually that certainty is not a sign of faith. It's not a sign of living out your Christianity. It's a kind of false idol. And then actually being a little bit confused and trusting God in that, in that grace, the gray and liminal spaces is the correct way to live out your faith. So you can see there that they're all kind of asking questions about what does it mean to live on a Tuesday, knowing the truth of Christianity, what difference does the Jesus's life and death and resurrection make when you live in the suburbs in the 20th century or the 21st century? And they don't all have the same answer. And some of the, their different answers are compatible and some of them are not compatible. It's a bunch of different things at once. But of course, they're all held together as part of this conversation, which we can see in physical form at the Christian bookstore. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Daniel Silliman. He's the news editor for Christianity Today, and we're speaking today about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Well, something else that I think listeners will be aware of in this sweep of recent history that you recount in your book, Reading Evangelicals, is that there is a narrative that comes alongside this. And it's a narrative that is touched on in, for example, the Amish romance novels, but then really comes to the fore in something like This Present Darkness or Left Behind. And it's this notion that evangelicals have that they are persecuted, or that they are somehow under attack from the wider culture. And I would really like to hear how that theme plays into some of this creation of identity that you are looking at in your book, Reading Evangelicals. Yeah, that's definitely there. And part of the work of the book is to see how something like that feeling of persecution, that feeling cultural conflicts can be very central to the evangelical identity at some times and for some people, and then not seem to matter at all in other moments and and other times. And I really do think it varies quite a bit. And one thing that's happened historically is that sense of conflict um, is really interesting to the rest of the world. And the political angles is really interesting to the rest of the world. And so that discussion about that can often seem like the whole thing. But yeah, in those two novels in particular, you really see the ideas of the religious right emerge. Sometimes the specific policy proposals, the evangelical support for the nation of Israel, for the state of Israel is very clear and left behind doesn't come up at all in any of the other books. It's not interesting to any in any of the other novels, but sometimes not in the policies at all, right? It's just in this sensibility, this sense of alienation from the rest of society, the sense that there's something antagonistic about broader society to evangelical belief in particular. Well, and so as we're thinking about this, there's a figure that comes up in the background uh, of your book, Francis Schaeffer. And folks that are unfamiliar with who Schaefer is, probably if you are not in evangelical circles, you may have never heard the name, but he was deeply influential, both he and his son, Frank Schaefer, shaping the way in which evangelicals thought about engaging the culture, trying to win the hearts and minds, if you will, of religious persons in the middle and late 20th century. And I'm interested, especially because as we were talking about earlier in the conversation, Jürgen Habermas 
discourse and the idea of discourse communities and imagined communities. There's a point in your book, Reading Evangelicals, where you say, and Francis Schaeffer would have completely hated all of this. And so I'm just, I'm interested in how figures like Schaeffer in the background, who themselves were not writing this fiction, influenced some of the fiction that you talk about in your book, Reading Evangelicals. Yeah, the connection of Francis, between Francis Schaeffer and, and Habermas, which as far as I can tell, they neither of them know about each other, but they're both asking kind of similar questions and coming over the opposite answers. Habermas is really interested in the idea of common grounds and how we tacitly agree on certain things just by engaging in conversation. Like you can establish that we all agree that like reason is important. And, and that common ground allows for a public sphere and sort of robust democratic societies. Schaefer really argues that ideologies are completely in conflict. So he comes up with a lot of the talk about worldview. And if you've heard any Christians talk about worldview and worldview analysis, that almost all goes back to, to Francis Schaeffer. And he has this idea that every ideology or every worldview is a totality and is, expresses itself in culture, and first in philosophy, and then maybe in theology, and then in fine art, and then eventually in popular culture. But they are totally in conflict. He uses an antithetical, which is a Hungarian word that doesn't quite mean what he uses it to mean, but just they're totally opposed and they share no common ground. And he uses this to develop a kind of apologetic. He's trying to argue with, in his case, mostly, mostly young college-educated people in Europe. He tries to argue with them that if they're faithful and true to their non-Christian ideologies, that will lead to something like existential despair, you know, the suicide of of abstract arts, he's thinking about Jean Balsartes and Picasso, and just thinks that if you reject the truth of an absolute God who's the measure of all things, that that will lead you to, yeah, chaos and despair. And he thinks that most people are just not consistent, and that if, if you, as a Christian philosopher, can push people to be consistent, they will at least sometimes reject chaos and existential despair and choose Christian theology. So this has two effects on broader evangelicalism. One, it gives some dignity and value to art. There'd been a previous generation of conservative Christians who were just like, I don't know, don't go to the movies, they seem immoral. And and don't read comic books. They seem not serious. And that's just a distraction. And you should, you know, be worried about theology and work and family and important stuff. And Schaefer really believes art was an expression of all these worldviews. And so, you know, for many young evangelicals, his books were actually an introduction to fine art and a reason to to read Jean-Paul Sartre and go look at Picasso paintings they're intellectual and valuable to think about and wrestle with. That actually authorizes a lot of the fiction that gets written. The second piece, though, and the piece that um, has a larger effect in, in sort of inspiring so much of the religious rights and some of the extreme politics of evangelicals that we've seen is the belief that there's no common ground. 
There's no compromise. There's no, you know, this. so much of politics at that time in the 50s and 60s and 70s was, well, we don't agree on the big ideological questions, but you need a bridge and I need a bridge. Let's get together and, you know, find these things we can cooperate on. And he articulated this idea that our worldviews are always in conflict. And so we should seek out the conflict and emphasize the conflict and underline the conflict. And in, in a way, that's what it is to be a good Christian, to not be a good neighbor in a kind of old-fashioned way, but to be in conflict with your neighbor so that they can see the, they can see the truth. That philosophical idea shaped a lot of evangelicalism in the second half of the 20th century. Well, your book, Reading Evangelicals, begins and ends in a bookstore that is in the process of shutting down in a going out of business sale. And your analysis kind of turns on the idea that this structure, book distribution and the consumption of popular fictional literature for evangelicals and for Christians played a major role in kind of shaping their identities. And now this distribution point and these many distribution points are being shut down and shuttered. And so I guess as my final question, my, I want to ask whether evangelicalism, now that this structural shaping of identity has gone off of the radar, what's next? And how do you see evangelical identity being shaped as we move into the depths of the 21st century? Yeah, it seems to me that the Christian bookstore pulled a bunch of different things together. And there were other things that did that too. I'm I'm never arguing that it was only the Christian bookstore. You know, I think that figure like Billy Graham did this too. Billy Graham worked with so many people and was popular, of course, not to everybody, but to quite a broad array of Christians in the country. And after Billy Graham, what happens? Well, there's not another Billy Graham that has emerged. There's certainly, you know, famous people. There are certainly still networks, but they're not like that. So you get a kind of fragmenting. You get a kind of new tribalism within evangelicalism. There's this group over here and there's this group over here. And they're not quite in one conversation. And when they do have that kind of imagined community, they're often not including those other people or they're, 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 they're frustrated with those other people. You know, the other thing we see, I think, is that the importance of national politics becomes so dominant. And in a way, national politics is the conversation that holds people together and evangelical as an identity within the political conversation often seems stronger to people and has more salience to people than a romance novel or an apocalyptic novel and how that shapes their their imagination. As a historian, I don't really know whether, but that seems like what's happening now. And I hope that by thinking about all the material structures that hold evangelicalism together, that we will um, be better equipped in that future to see what's happening as it's happening, as new networks emerge, as networks fall apart, as networks shift, to have a better sense of who and what this community is about and how their imagination is um, affecting them and leading them to live out their faith in the world today. Well, Daniel Silliman, 
I learned so much from your book, Reading Evangelicals. It, it was right up my alley because your kind of material analysis of book sales and book structures leading to religious identity is, is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. I think that any listener who reads your book is going to come away with such a more full and robust understanding of the last 50 years. You really open up through just a very entertaining and informative way, a kind of shadowy world of of connections that now that I've seen them through your writing make a lot more sense to me. I'm so grateful that you took the time to write the book. Thank you, especially for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Thanks. This was a great conversation. We've been speaking today with Daniel Silliman. He is news editor for Christianity Today. He earned a doctoral degree in American studies from Heidelberg University in Germany and has taught U.S. history and humanities at Heidelberg, Valparaiso University, and Milligan University. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.